Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, October 28, 2014. I'll be traveling next week. First, I head to Ohio to participate in the Housing Policy Plenary Session at the 2014 Ohio Housing Conference. From there, I go to Washington, D.C. to speak at our annual Renewable Energy Tax Credit Conference. Now this week, I begin the podcast with a quick update regarding some of what is at stake in next week's House and Senate elections. I also have another update regarding tax extender legislation, and I'll share information published by the OCC recently that describes the benefits of partnerships between banks and community development loan funds. In our low-income housing tax credit section, I'll discuss a sign-on letter that's being circulated for the affordable housing community to urge lawmakers to extend the minimum 9% low-income housing tax credit rate before Congress adjourns for the year. I'll also share an update about sponsorship for the LIHTC Rate 4 Bill, H.R. 4717. In this week's historic tax credit discussion, I have information about the Advisory Council and on Historic Preservation's next quarterly meeting, as well as recent state-level discussions about the importance of state historic tax credits in Missouri and North Carolina. Turning to our renewable energy segment, I'll review the solar community's plans for a national campaign to extend the Investment Tax Credit, or ITC, beyond its current 2016 sunset date. I will also examine some data from the wind energy community, which reports that the U.S. wind industry had its busiest third quarter ever. And I'll wrap up today with our new market tax credit discussion, where I'll remind listeners about the upcoming deadline to comment on CRA guidance, Community Reinvestment Act guidance, that is, that includes a revision related to new market tax credit investments. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, next Tuesday is midterm election day. Every seat in the House of Representatives is up for election, and 36 of 100 U.S. Senate seats are up as well. Now, virtually all political prognosticators believe that the House will remain in Republican hands with a potential net gain of 8 to 12 seats for the Republicans. The Senate, on the other hand, is very much up for grabs. Most prognosticators give Republicans a better than 50% chance of taking control of the Senate, but their chances are far from certain. I'll note that the website I follow most closely, 538.com, gives Republicans a 63% chance. But I also note that that's updated daily, so between now and Election Day, it's certainly likely to change. Regarding expected changes in key committees, it is widely expected that in the next Congress, Representative Paul Ryan will take the reins at the tax-writing House Ways and Means Committee. And if Republicans take control of the Senate, then Senator Orrin Hatch is expected to take the Senate Finance Committee chairmanship from Senator Ron Wyden. Now, regarding control of the Senate, it is more likely than not 
that control will not be known on election night. There is a significant possibility or even a probability that a runoff election will be needed in Louisiana and potentially Georgia as well. And given the closeness in a number of races, a recount is quite possible in at least one tight race. And Alaska, given its geographic size and heavy reliance on absentee ballots, may not have final results until well into November. Kyle Trigstad and Humberto Sanchez at RollCall.com have a nice piece that explains why vote counting in Alaska takes a long time. I'll tweet the link to the article later today. But I do note, for instance, that in Alaska, according to the vote counting schedule recently finalized by election officials, absentee ballots postmarked from within the United States must be received by November 14th and, and counted by November 19th. Now, if you do want periodic updates from me on election night, sign up and follow my Twitter. I'll tweet and retweet breaking news as it's happening. Now, let's turn to a brief update on extenders. The Congressional Research Service, or CRS, released a report last week updating revenue estimates for a few provisions in the Expire Act that may be of interest to listeners. Now, you'll recall that the Expire Act would extend most expired and soon-to-expire tax provisions through 2015. This bill was approved by the Senate Finance Committee earlier this year, but it didn't advance in the Senate. Many expect the Expire Act to be the basis for lame-duck tax extender legislation. The CRS report that was issued last week is an update of an analysis first released in May. The report briefly summarizes four community development-related tax provisions. The New Market Tax Credit, Empowerment Zone Tax Incentives, Allocation of Bond Limitations for Qualified Zone Academy Bonds, and the American Samoa Economic Development Credit. In addition to summarizing these incentives, the report added two new estimates that weren't provided in May. It's worth noting that even though the Expire Act only extends provisions for two years, the Joint Committee on Taxation's budgetary projections and those in the report estimate the 10-year tax revenue impact. CRS now estimates the Empowerment Zone tax incentives would cost $498 million over 10 years. CRS also revised the cost estimate for Qualified Zone Academy bonds, raising the 10-year projections from $251 million to $284 million. Estimates for the two other provisions are the same. The JCT estimates the new market tax credit would cost the federal government $1.8 billion over a decade, and the American Samoa Economic Development Credit would cost $29 million. Because Congress relies on the JCT estimates to inform their economic decision-making, higher cost estimates could mean a slightly steeper climb to gain approval than was originally projected. In bank community investment news, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or the OCC, published a newsletter last week describing the benefits of partnerships between banks and community development loan funds, or CDLFs. And as we're here in a moment, these partnerships sometimes involve tax credit investments. The OCC says banks and CDLFs may often see each other as competitors. But in the latest issue of its Community Development Insights newsletter, the OCC said that partnerships between the two could allow each of them to better reach low- and moderate-income and underserved populations. As listeners may know, CDLFs are the largest type of community development funding institutions. 
they're typically nonprofit organizations that lend to low-income and underserved communities. In addition to financing, CDLFs provide services like training for startup businesses and financial literacy education. At the end of 2013, nearly 500 CDLFs were certified by the Treasury Department. While CDLFs' biggest lending activity is housing, the OCC says there has been a recent increase in lending to small businesses and other non-housing lending. The partnerships suggested by the OCC would blend traditional banking with CDLF lending. The upside for banks is that such partnerships could help them connect with businesses and organizations that they might otherwise miss. Banks could also benefit from new sources of capital being explored by CDLFs, including crowdfunding and the increase of socially conscious investors looking for expert lenders. But banks aren't the only beneficiaries of such partnerships, according to the OCC. CDLFs can gain access to far more capital if a bank is involved, and both partners may refer customers to each other for different needs. Banks can also help CDLFs by offering office space or providing expertise on their board. Now, particular relevance to listeners, CDLFs can often offer new market tax credits in community development projects in return for investment in those projects. The OCC says there are many ways banks and CDLFs can partner. For example, large banks often launch outreach programs, CDLFs, partners in their regions with special programs. Meanwhile, community banks tend to partner with CDLFs in day-to-day lending activities. For example, smaller banks that might not be able to join larger community development projects may join a consortium, which can be certified by the Treasury. In that case, CDLFs could take the lead in applying for loan housing tax credits and following the criteria. Because of the potential benefits that can be created, the OCC urges both banks and CDLFs to consider the possibility that a partnership could help them and the community. The OCC cautions banks to do their homework, including getting a strong understanding of a CDLF's plans, strategy, and level of capitalization needs. Now, you can learn more about this online at www.novico.com. Simply click on the link for the CRA Resource Center. In the local housing tax credit news, the Action Campaign is circulating a sign-on letter for the affordable housing community to urge lawmakers to extend the minimum 9% local housing tax credit rate before Congress adjourns for the year. In the letter, the Action Campaign also calls for establishing a minimum 4% credit rate for affordable housing acquisitions funded by allocated tax credits. As listeners know, a minimum 9% rate was in place until legislation expired in 2013. After that, the 9% credit rate went back to a floating rate that's tied to ever-changing and recently declining federal borrowing rates. The Action Campaign said that floating credit rates make it difficult for states to allocate affordable housing resources effectively. As such, The letter says that the minimum 9% and 4% credit rates should be made permanent. However, the affordable housing community says that even a temporary extension of these provisions for at least two years would significantly strengthen the credit at virtually no additional cost to taxpayers. The letter said that a minimum credit rate doesn't necessarily mean that developers get higher credit amounts, and that's an important point. It simply means that states will have the flexibility to increase equity if necessary to keep affordable housing developments viable. The deadline to sign on to the letter is November 4th. More than 650 organizations have signed on already. You can find a copy of the letter at www.rentalhousingaction.org.
In related news, earlier this month, Representative Rick Nolan, a Democrat out of Minnesota, spoke publicly in favor of the low-income housing tax credit. Nolan, who signed on as a co-sponsor of H.R. 4717 in September, lauded the tax credit's ability to encourage the private sector to partner with federal government to provide affordable housing. If passed, H.R. 4717 would create a 9% LHTC rate floor for new affordable housing developments, and the bill would establish a fixed 4% rate for acquisition costs associated with allocated LHTC developments. These 9% and 4% credit rate floors would provide more certainty in the marketplace that could encourage more private investment in affordable housing. On October 10th, Nolan noted the bipartisan support for the rate floor bill and said, quote, if we can just get it for a vote on the floor of the House and the Senate, I'm absolutely certain we can pass it, close quote. Now, at the time of this recording, the bill had 64 bipartisan co-sponsors, 34 Democrats and 30 Republicans, and the bill is currently in the House Ways and Means Committee. And while an extension of the LHCC rate floor would likely only be part of a larger extenders bill at this time, it is encouraging that so many lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are coming out in favor of the bill and the long housing tax credit program. In historic tax credit news, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, or ACHP, will hold its quarterly meeting next week. The meeting will be held at the Russell Senate Office Building in Washington, D.C. on Thursday, November 6th at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. If any listeners are interested in attending, the meetings are open to the public. ACHP is an independent federal agency that advises the President and Congress on national historic preservation policy. This includes reviewing federal programs like the Historic Tax Credit in order to promote effectiveness, coordination, and consistency with national preservation policies. Discussion items currently on the agenda include building a more inclusive preservation program, working with Indian tribes, funding for tribal and state historic preservation programs, and the 50th anniversary of the National Historic Preservation Act. Discussions may also address Section 106 issues and ACHP management issues. You can find the full agenda for the meeting and more information in the October 24th Federal Register Notice which you can find at historictaxcredits.com. In other historic tax credit news, state historic credits in Missouri and North Carolina are getting credit for preserving important properties and creating benefits for the economy. In Kansas City last week, a panel discussion focused on the value of historic tax credits to the renovation of that city's older downtown buildings. The discussion took place at a luncheon sponsored by a real estate organization, KC Crew. Missouri offers a 25% state credit, as you may know, and during the discussion, a development partner in one of the city's biggest historic tax credit projects said that without the state and federal credits, his and other projects in Kansas City would be impossible. His current development, the 30-story Commerce Tower, obtained $23 million in state tax credits. Another panelist highlighted his firm's renovation of 12 downtown buildings in the past eight years, thanks in large part to the historic tax credit. While folks in Kansas City were trumpeting the value of the Missouri historic tax credit, residents 850 miles away to the east were lamenting the end of their state's historic tax credit. Some residents of Asheville, North Carolina, say the scheduled demolition of a 90-year-old railroad structure foreshadows a dangerous future for historic structures. 
the nearly century-old roundhouse owned by Norfolk Southern Railway is scheduled to be demolished on November 3rd. The Asheville Citizen Times newspaper reports that after the railway announced it would demolish the building, the city received emails and phone calls asking it to step in and save it. The roundhouse is one of only two such buildings in North Carolina, and the head of the city's preservation society warns that the expiration of the state's historic tax credit at the end of the year could lead to the loss of more such buildings. North Carolina's 20% historic tax credit, you may know, was enacted in 1998, and the State Historic Preservation Office reports that more than 2,300 rehabilitation projects have used the state credit in the past 16 years, contributing an estimated $1.3 billion in investment and adding 2,200 jobs a year to the state's economy. But the North Carolina historic tax credit is set to sunset this year. Supporters hope to rescue some form of an historic tax credit when the state legislature reconvenes. Currently, North Carolina is one of 35 states with a state historic tax credit. If you want to learn more about the credits in North Carolina, Missouri, or other states, go online to historictaxcredits.com or contact my partner, Mike Kressig, in our St. Louis, Missouri office. In renewable energy tax credit news, the Solar Energy Industries Association last week launched a national campaign to extend the investment tax credit, or the ITC, beyond its current 2016 sunset date. Roan Resch, the group's president and CEO, announced the campaign in Las Vegas at the opening session of the Solar Power International Trade Show. In his comments, Resch noted the dramatic increase in solar investment since the ITC went into effect in 2006. He said solar installations activity this year will be 70 times what it was in 2006. He also noted that the $800 million industry has grown into a $15 billion a year industry during those eight years. Rush told the audience that it took 40 years to install the first 20 gigawatts of solar. But by contrast, he said the next 20 gigawatts will be installed in just the next two years. That said, he noted that the ICTC needs to be extended for this pattern of growth to continue. Rush warned of a repeat of what happened to the wind industry in 2013. He estimated that about 30,000 jobs were lost because of uncertainty about the production tax credit. Now, it's important to note that because the ITC is not set to expire this year, it's not included in the tax incentives package that may be considered on the Senate floor during the upcoming lane duck session. SIA's campaign will focus on the new Congress that will reconvene in January. And there will be three focuses to the campaign. The first focus will be to educate members of Congress and their staffs about the value of the ITC, including the jobs and economic boost the tax credit generates, as well as the environmental benefits associated with solar. Second will be a focus on fairness that will essentially argue that unless Congress ends all energy incentives, the solar ITC is crucial to keep a level playing field. And third, the group will emphasize the overwhelming public support for renewable energy, highlighting a recent survey that showed that 90% of the American public supports solar. The announcement about SIA's campaign comes on the heels of related news that at least two utility-scale thermal plants have been mothballed because of uncertainty about whether they could be finished by the end of the year 2016. As listeners likely know, that's currently a requirement to receive the tax credits that have to be placed in service by that date. 
Now, in addition to the efforts to extend the ITC, the energy community is also calling for Congress to change the existing investment tax credit place and service date. Measures to amend the ITC to cover projects where construction has begun by the end of 2016, rather than just have begun operation or been placed in service, have been introduced in both the House and the Senate. The future of the ITC and the possible timing of an extension of the ITC will be one of the many topics discussed at the Novogratz Financing Renewable Energy Conference next week in Washington, D.C. that I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I'll be attending. In other energy news, the U.S. wind industry had its busiest third quarter ever. This according to a report issued by the American Wind Energy Association, or AWEA. The report also notes that typically 60 to 70 percent of annual installations are completed in the fourth quarter of the year. According to the report, 19 wind projects have been completed this year in the United States. These projects have as much wind-generating capacity as all of the projects completed in 2013. Tom Kiernan, AWEA's CEO, told a gathering of Wall Street investors that he's optimistic that Congress will extend the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit, or PTC. A PTC extension is part of the Expire Act, and that's the bill that would extend nearly 60 tax provisions and could be considered yet this year. I also referenced it earlier in the podcast. Kiernan said the future of the industry is bright, citing recent Department of Energy data that showed the cost of U.S. wind power was down by more than half over the past five years. You can see additional details of the report at the American Wind Energy Association's website, www.awea.org, www.awea.org. In new markets tax credit news, I'd like to remind listeners there's still time to submit comments about proposed revisions to the interagency questions and answers regarding community reinvestment. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and related agencies invited comments on revised changes to the Q&A last month. Among other things, the proposed new and revised CRA questions and answers clarify guidance about economic development, provide examples of community development loans and activities that are considered to revitalize or stabilize an underserved non-metropolitan middle-income geography, and they clarify how community development services are evaluated. One of the proposed changes in the revised guidance says the Federal Financial Institution Examination Council, the FFIEC, those are the monitors for banks, will presume that any economic development loan or investment in a community development entity, or CDE, will get CRA credit. This could make it easier to incentivize more leveraged loans in new market tax credit investing activities. Now, unfortunately, there's a slight drafting error, appears to be a drafting error, in how the terms are defined, and the Novogratz New Market Tax Credit Working Group will be submitting a comment letter. If you have suggestions of what else should be included in the Novogratz NMTC Working Group comment letter, please send an email to Brad Elphick in our Atlanta office. Now back to the proposed changes. What I went through and mentioned about leverage loans is just one of the many proposed changes in the revised Q&A document. And in terms of commenting, you have until November 10th. If you'd like to review the complete notice go to www.novico.com and click on the CRA Resource Center link. And if you have questions about what this or other proposed changes in the CRA Q&A could mean for the tax credit communities, please contact Peter Lawrence in our Washington, D.C. office. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. 
thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novograd and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.